right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hodlecast. Today is October 14th, and we have a very special guest, Bill Wise. Bill has been a law clerk at Hodder Law Firm for the past couple months, and uh, very grateful to, to all the wonderful work you've contributed, Bill, and uh, wanted to take this opportunity today just to, you know, you're all, you're, you've got a lot of great opinions on things, and I thought we'd just go through some of the news in, in crypto this week. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> thanks for having me. And of course, it's a pleasure working at Hotter Law Firm and a great experience. So I'm excited to dig into everything. <laughs> awesome. Well, first, why don't you give us a little background of yourself and how you got involved in the Bitcoin and crypto space? Yeah, so I got into crypto in 2019, actually through a buddy. Um, I'd always been peripherally aware of the crypto space, but never enough interest to really like dive in. Until my friend was like, oh, you know, have you heard of Chainlink, <laughs> right? And I'm like, interesting. So I took a look and it all seemed, you know, very fascinating because I was always a, you know, computer technology oriented person. And I guess crypto, I, I never read into it where I could really connect kind of those interests of, of finance and technology. And I proceeded to buy $40 worth of XLM. That was my first crypto. So congrats, Stellar. And... I remember at the time I had to buy ETH on Coinbase and then transfer it to Exodus and then swap for the Stellar. So it was uh, amazing how far we've come, you know, since then. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I, I, funny you say Chainlink. I used to be a member of a dojo, a Muay Thai dojo in um, DC with my friend Adela. She was partners like you know sparring partners with this guy at the dojo who was so into chain link and yeah, yeah he was just and I remember thinking it was just a you know I was not a serious coin I'm, I kind of come from more of the Bitcoin maximalist side yeah. and I was saying oh man this poor guy's gonna lose all his money on chain link but like I didn't say anything but man did it ever go up from there I was like kicking myself afterwards I'm like what the I oracle problem Sasha the Oracle problem. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it's um, you know, the crypto assets create cults of cults of I want to say cult of personality, but it's really more of like cult of money, I suppose, mm. more so than any other asset. Perhaps maybe maybe the meme stocks, but you know, Chainlink had this just rabid following where they'd make memes. You know, they'd. Uh, post on the forums it, or there'd always be chain link threads people going oh we're all going to be rich you know and uh i don't know if any of them really understood the oracle problem but that was a common refrain um and it's it, that was wild to me because i'm like i don't see microsoft stock people acting like this <laughs> but you know crypto's got kind of that it's not just financial it's like a cultural pull as well mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> So what are your goals like what, as a crypto attorney? What, what kind of impact do you want to have on the space? Yeah, so I think there's kind of two main points for me going for crypto law. And I think the first point is I am, as they would say, a true believer. So like never selling, right? To my detriment in some cases. <laughs> but, you know, in I think... In the long run, it'll be for your benefit, I think. It's all going to go up. It's going to go back up. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know... As, as a believer, you know, I really think, you know, the technology, coins aside, you know, whether crypto, the same tokens are going to be around in 10 years, I think it's probably up for a healthy debate. 
But the, the blockchain technology in and of itself, I think, has the capacity to really reform finance so that it's more efficient. You know, we can eliminate a lot of middlemen. We can eliminate uncertainty. And efficiency is obviously always good. But more so, it gives access to people. It gives people access to financial markets in ways that really they never had before. You know, you look at all these countries where governments mismanage the currency, for example. And, you know, you've got these you know, hardworking people who just see their life savings wiped out in the blink of an eye due to something they really can't control. And for them, Western regulated markets are for the most part out of reach. You know, crypto gives these people in some ways a way out, you know, and that process, that path is going to change. And there's certainly pitfalls, right? With what coins you buy, some go up, some go down. Um, but I think ultimately, uh, from at least the, you know, the viewpoint of crypto can improve finance for everybody, you know, around the world. So that's, that's kind of why I can tell myself as a lawyer, I'm going to help blaze that trail uh, to make this technology, you know, more accessible to everyone and kind of bring, bring blockchain to its, its fullest potential. So that's kind of the philosophical reason. Uh, the other reason is I think that there's not a lot of people who know traditional finance and law and blockchain technology, you know, in equal kind of expertise. Mm -hmm. I'd say in my school, which is limited sample size, but at my law school, I don't think I've run into a single person who knows about blockchain like I do. You know, everyone's like, oh yeah, the Bitcoin, right? You know, they're like, but it's not real. And I'm like, oh my goodness, where do I even start? I know. So, <laughs> I'm, so I'm hoping that I'm, I'm kind of ahead of the curve on this one and, uh, you know, looking forward to joining the job market next year. <laughs> but yeah. um, I think, you know, professionally, it, it's a good path. Agreed. Yeah. When, when I was in school, it was even earlier. And same thing. I just, after using Bitcoin once, like every time I went to a vending machine and I'd have to, you know, get cash out to buy my, you know, candy bar at school or something, I just always thought, why am I not holding my phone up and a Bitcoin wallet transaction happening here? Like this is just, now they have, you know, phones, like the mm -hmm. Apple Pay and stuff is a lot more yeah. advanced, but for a good couple of years before Venmo or anything, it was just, uh, Bitcoin was there and it wasn't being used for, you know, nearly all the potential it could be and and anytime you would talk about it with people it was just met with scorn like you said oh what backs that you know it's just a fad or it, all these different rhetorics and it's like oh man just uh, you, these people are just missing the boat you know this is the technology of the future and from a from a practical standpoint as a crypto lawyer it's a very uh I don't want to sound crass, but it's a lucrative position because there's not a lot of crypto lawyers out there. There's certainly more and more lawyers joining the field every day or, you know, every cohort of people that are graduating. I think there's a few people in every class, probably like yourself, that are, you know, focused on it and tuned in. But the vast majority of people still go into like, you know, insurance law or just yeah. really boring topics. And I met with one of my former classmates and she was telling me she was, works on auto glass insurance, declining people from getting their windshield <laughs> fixed. I thought, oh my God, I would die if that's what, what I do all day. <laughs> like just yeah, what, what, what a way to go. But yeah. I, I don't judge. If you like doing that, <laughs> be my guest. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll take the bitcoins myself. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and and it's just you get the chance to 
work with really intelligent companies like the, these are everyone that as I'm sure you've already seen you know that the, of the projects that we're working on together it's it's you're working with these founders that have a real vision on making the world better you know and you hear that in all the Silicon Valley talk oh we want to make the world a better place but uh, you know who's really working on trying to do that it's the people building the rails for this whole crypto economy so you've got these it's just fun. Nothing is ever the same every day. And it's, uh, yeah. it's always interesting, new, challenging topics. So yeah, it's great. It's always, always new things to learn, you know, always just new challenges. And what's really refreshing is, at least in my life, there's probably only one or two other people in my personal life that I can talk crypto with at like any amount of depth, you know, <laughs> and maybe like one person, like super in depth, everyone else, <laughs> any conversation just immediately gets stopped because I'm like, oh my goodness, I have to explain. There's so much I have to explain to you to even get to the conversation of the, you want to talk about the security question. It's like, there's so much ground we have to cover just to get to the how we test, you know? So it's, it's great where we can kind of, at least in, in this line of work, everyone's kind of speaking the same language, you know? So it's, um, it's been awesome. Mm -hmm. <laughs> nice. And yeah, speaking of the Howey test, you know, there's rumors of the SEC investigating the Board Ape Yacht Club. Um, what do you think of that? I, I know we haven't really talked that much about NFTs and their security implications um, in any of our work yet. So uh, curious, I shared you a thread of the one guy that went through a really in-depth analysis. He claimed he's a crypto lawyer. But I was curious, Bill, what do you think of, of that thread and, and the whole topic in general? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, Yuga Labs, they've gotten so big. I figured it was probably only a matter of time until, you know, SEC comes knocking. Um, the, the, I think the challenge that Yuga Labs faces on the security question is they have really expanded their offerings beyond just NFTs. So, if we're operating in a vacuum and we take them back to just the board apes and just, you know, we've got these NFTs, people can purchase them. It's like, um, it's like a social status, people like art, you know, and the values explode, not really because of them, but because of kind of the meme kind of potential of the, uh, uh, of we're going to ape in, right? Like a uh, monkey time, you know, Joe Rogan probably play, played a part in that, you know, we're going to ape into this, into this coin. Um, and, you know, they exploded. I think in, in that kind of vacuum, Yuga probably has a pretty cut and dry argument of like, this is art. You know, these, these aren't securities. This is just property. Um, but then they add complications. So there was like the mutant ape airdrop, you know, where certain uh, ape owners got some other NFT that they could use to mint a mutant ape. And those are, of course, you know, those skyrocketed in value. Um, so that's like maybe a little bit more suspicious. And, and now they have the, the virtual real estate, right, of their, of their metaverse. And that complicates things even more. I think with the information we have, I think they probably still have a strong argument that it's not a security. But there's, you know, the, the, the SEC's how we test really, in some ways, goes beyond just the prongs. You know, they've got all these other factors that they weigh in mysterious amounts. <laughs> At least they won't tell us, right? They're vague. Um, that could that bring in other considerations. And, you know, Yuga, I think, 
Yuga Labs needs to be well aware that how or however they build their metaverse or carry their company in the future, that this is a risk. Because like I've always said, the SEC generally is not charitable regarding crypto companies. Uh, I would tend to agree with you there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's interesting. Like, so I I wasn't even aware that they did that airdrop, but typically an airdrop, I've always viewed it as something that's not, it doesn't meet the first prong of the Howey test, but it could be seen in this case as a dividend. So if it's a dividend, then it's its own enumerated type of security. But if we're just looking at the investment contract analysis, it's no there's no payment of money. Although you know, the SEC will probably argue, well, they paid money the first time to get the, the initial board ape. And then by owning that, they get an airdrop. But if you separate it out, then that airdrop shouldn't be. And, and if the airdrop is just art too, it's like you're allowed to give your, say you're an artist and you have a lot of fans and you want to give them something like a, um, you know, a bonus content or something like that. I don't think they're, that inherently makes it a security, but it's it's just it it's all a really tight fine line in this case because the money was so high like it's millions of dollars for these things and it's like well if this is just art why is it millions of dollars for a jpeg but if you look at the traditional art world there's no talent like uh, uh, some uh, uh, give them making myself not seem like a very sophisticated art connoisseur but like why is a banana taped to a wall worth a hundred thousand dollars you know it's like the, the the way art is valued is very subjective mm -hmm. and depends on the artist and their reputation and uh and so yeah I don't want to see these turn into securities because then it will make such a mess for the whole nft industry and you know, where would they trade? They'd have to go on the formal stock exchange. Well, no formal stock exchanges <laughs> set up to sell board apes. So they just, if they were deemed securities, they just couldn't exist. They'd have, and then everyone that all, if the SEC's goal is to protect people, well, what does, what does that kind of do? It makes everyone's investment into them or, you know, purchase of them thus far valueless because they won't be able to be sold or resold. There'll be no aftermarket for them if they're deemed securities. So it, it's just going to hurt everyone. And I just wish they would back off a little bit. I'm personally of the opinion that I should be allowed to gamble my money, but uh, <laughs> I definitely get... Um... You know, the idea is you don't want predatory, you know, companies going after or trying to scam retail investors. But, you know, I think the tricky thing for the board apes is like you kind of alluded to with the valuation and kind of the whole market that's kind of spawned around them. You know, the SEC, it's not in the Howie test, but in a lot of the SEC's letters, they talk about intent, right? Like, are people buying this for a speculative purpose? Or when people buy this, are they expecting to, you know, for example, maybe get an airdrop, right? Mm -hmm. Um that I think I, I think I don't know if there's anybody around that like who buys I'm sure there's some people who buy board apes for clout you know certainly but I would have to imagine that after the precedent set there are plenty of people who purchase it because they're like well it's a monkey people like monkeys number go up right mm -hmm. so that that might be a a trickier kind of part of it but you know SEC so vague on kind of these other non-Howie factors. They're like, oh, well, we consider this, but, and then they list like 20 different factors. And I really, we really are given no indication as to how much one is weighed short of the SEC just going like, these in particular, we might, we will consider. 
uh, indicative of something being, you know, like a utility token. Mm-hmm. And that that's frustrating on like the law part, and I'm sure it is for you also. Uh, but unless, you know, Congress gets some <laughs> legislation out there, I, I don't know what else we can expect. Oh, yeah. And it's almost like we don't I don't think that legislation is going to be good whenever it comes. It's going to say that they're all securities or create some new asset class and they can only trade in a you know centralized exchange, probably like they'll say, oh, Coinbase is registered as an alternative trading platform. We're comfortable with their level of expertise for custodying people's assets and for making the right kind of risk disclosures before an asset's listed. So all trading has to be done through Coinbase or, you know, other similar, you know, platforms, maybe Gemini will be granted the green light or, you know, places that are already registered like T0, but it won't be allowed to continue on decentralized platforms, which to me, that's the whole innovation going on here is the peer-to-peer decentralized network. And if they put it all on Coinbase, sure, it'll still be kind of fun for people making the art and stuff, but it's, you know, people on the OFAC regions, they won't be able to participate or, um, you know, it's just, it's just going to change the whole dynamic. Like I've seen People in the rare Pepe community, the artists from Mm. Venezuela, they came in the early community and they made money for their whole families selling these pictures of frogs. Because I know OpenSea has delisted things. Now you could still, you know, exchange NFTs elsewhere, right? On a peer-to-peer basis. But, you know, if I recall correctly, you know, OpenSea did ax some collections, you know, or at least remove them from like being searchable. And I'm like, okay, well, now we're basically back to where we started. Yeah, yeah. So I guess, you know, it's not that different. If I think that's what Congress probably would prescribe is some centralized platform. And I guess that's already where we kind of have. So, um, but but OpenSea doesn't require KYC, does it? No. Yeah, so I guess that will be the difference. Everyone will have a KYC and then it'll give you a tax report at the end of your year for your, you know, trading, which... Which, you know, in some senses that my my husband, he'll be pissed if I talk about it really, but he's so worried about his taxes because he just, it's so hard to calculate when you're trading on all these different platforms and everything to really get a true number that I think he would almost be rather someone tell him, here's what you owe. And it's just that uh-huh. simple versus trying to calculate. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. Thousands of transactions, many on different chains using exchanges that really don't track anything mm-hmm. if i i have to i can't imagine that people can 100 percent comply and actually i'm writing a paper on that uh for, oh, for law school. I'm, work, I'm working with my tax professor on like the challenges of taxing blockchain the short version is it's a nightmare <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, and it's unknown so it's like i'm looking at my own transactions i'm like oh my goodness like i have no idea what happened here but the irs probably doesn't know what happened either. You know, if you're someone who did thousands upon thousands of transactions. Um, I mean, IRS has alluded to, you know, they've got Operation Hidden Treasure or whatever. Um, but it's like, what do you do when something just uses, if, if you have thousands of transactions and those some of those transactions are taking bridges to like different chains, where do you even begin untangling that? Like, are you going to subpoena, you know, wormhole to cough up the transactions from that one address. I suppose that's fine. But what if you have 10,000 addresses? 
Yeah. You know, then that's not so easy. It's too vast for, for anyone to figure out with any accuracy, I think, unless you're crazy about keeping records every time you do a transaction, but um, from, yeah, from, which is always, which is good practice. <laughs> yeah. That's the best practice, <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah, it's uh, the taxing the, it would be easier, I guess, for the government if everyone used a centralized platform. Hey, taxes on the blockchain, you know, <laughs> imagine if we could just have that instead of doing your, all your forms and everything, you just have a blockchain and the smart contract takes care of it all. It'd be pretty nice. Oh, how would that work? So one of my professors wrote a paper on that. Um, his name is Professor Charles Delmont. He wrote a whole kind of paper about what taxes would look like on the blockchain. And you know, for the purpose of the paper, the scope is kind of na- narrowed to, well, let's just say, let's put the sales tax on the blockchain. And kind of the idea is whenever you purchase something, it's kind of like your social security number, everyone has a wallet of some kind. And when the transaction happens, the government just automatically pulls its tax and you don't have to worry about it. You know, so the smart contract just takes care of everything and the government takes its, gets its tax sooner. And in the meanwhile, we're not burdened with the whatever billions of dollars it costs to comply. Um, now, of course, that brings up other issues. And there's a section in the paper about things like privacy concerns. You know, this obviously implies the CBDC eventually being used. Like that just makes sense to go together. Um, but in terms of eliminating the cost of compliance, which is basically just wasted economic potential, you know, a blockchain system could, does show promise in certain applications like that, as long as you can get over the privacy concerns. Yeah, <laughs> which are, uh, I think, the core of the innovation of the whole technology. So if we go into that system, it's like, I... I hope we don't get there, <laughs> but, but yeah, no, it's um, where it's all funneling. So yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. I think if blockchain is as groundbreaking as we think it is highly likely government's going to get a, going to try to get a piece of the pie um, now, but you know, we, we already live in a cross chain world. So I don't think it's the end of days, so to speak. You know, I don't think Ethereum is going to get banned. Mm-hmm. What I suspect maybe is we have like GovChain, right? Whatever that may be. And you've got your CBDC, but, you know, ETH still exists in the form that we understand that. Uh, Maybe with a more crypto-friendly government, you'd be able to bridge things like USDC. Probably not, but (laughs) it's a thought. Uh, But I I don't think necessarily those two things have to be exclusive. Because I think the government centralized chain is inevitable. Like that, that's definitely coming. Um, The question is, is can it coexist with the decentralized future that we obviously all know and love. Mm -hmm. Which I think it can, I think there'll be two, two avenues, like one, this centralized like government coin that most people will end up using. And then the, there'll be outside of that, there'll be the Bitcoin and, and maybe Ethereum and what, you know, all the coins won't go away. Um, They'll just be used outside of that and people will have to use them on maybe tour network or something like that mm. hopefully not hopefully we don't oh see yeah that. I was like, that, that's a dark future i, I don't want to i don't want to think about that then yeah. i'm in trouble <laughs> <laughs> yeah well <laughs> who, who, who am i going to be the lawyer for if, if you if you can't if you can only be blockchain on an underground network yeah <laughs> true <laughs> yeah and it, it the, the U.S. laws don't apply to global 
like the global rules are so much more relaxed for everything. I mean, they are strict and they are becoming tighter as we speak in Europe with the Mika legislation. But generally, you know, for the last decade, it's been a lot easier to operate in the blockchain world overseas than it has in America. But they all want to sell to Americans because that's where the, you know, the the money is really. So, yeah. And I think that's probably the strongest argument for America to be crypto friendly. It's like, okay, well, crypto is going to grow whether you like it or not. The question is, is do you want to be a leader or do you want to be a follower? And in that case, who's going to be the leader? You know, China? Well, that doesn't sound like a good idea. <laughs> so ho hopefully, um, I, I think that's probably one of our strongest arguments uh, when it comes to convincing the U.S. government that, hey, 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 you know, this this is new. It's scary. We get it. But you know, this could, this is going to grow just like the internet. And, you know, if U.S. wants to remain technologically dominant, you know, you gotta, gotta adapt. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And then it's like, well, we could talk about this later, you know, in the, you mm -hmm. did a report for us on the cryptocurrency and cybercrime, and it, it had some interesting things in there that made it not so scary to the government as as I thought it was going to show up, you know, that most of crypto is used for crime or at least, a, you know, half of it, but it showed up at like point, you know, what was it? 0.2% or something. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, on that, on, so on that stat specifically, um, in, in 2021, out of all the transactions executed on the blockchain, only 0.15% of the transactions came from illicit addresses, which is insanely low. <laughs> yeah. So even, even if we were to give the data kind of like, if, even if we weren't going to be charitable, it's like you could double that and it's still super low. And it's a big improvement from the 2020 number, which was 0.62% of all transactions. So we're trending in, in, in the, the right direction. Um, and I think when it comes to like the, the, the cyber crime thing, crypto, it's, it's really an education problem in that people, when they hear Bitcoin, they still think, oh, um, you know, people are buying drugs or what have you off the dark net, um, even though it's like the fact that Bitcoin can be traced actually makes it like one of the worst things to do that with. Um, but that's kind of like the impression, I think, in a lot of just, dare I say, lay people's heads. And but, you know, you look at the data and I think the data is actually quite strong for us in that. OK, yes, we acknowledge crime exists. Crime exists with virtually all financial <laughs> currencies, you know, um, but at least with crypto, you know, crypto does provide some tools that law enforcement can use to hopefully, uh, you know, reduce uh, the amount of activity that's being done. Um, and also, just like the numbers just aren't very significant compared to, you know, traditional financial crimes. I mean, when you get traditional financial crimes, you get like, you know, Bernie Madoff or, 2008, right? I think most people would call that a crime. Yes. So it, um, I think that the crime report was, is quite, quite good uh, for crypto, especially if you, you know, parse the numbers. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, agreed. And the money laundering and scams, like I said, there's two types of cyber crime that have been most prevalent in the last three years, money laundering and cyber crimes, but uh, it, I was, yeah, I was just shocked, like how low was from the dark net and stuff like that. Maybe, maybe can you just run through the, the whole, whole report for us? Yeah. So, you know, the highlights. The, yeah. So I, I think probably the most relevant part is, I mean, yeah, there, 
like you mentioned, kind of the, the darknet transactions are a fairly small amount compared to things like what we would call, you know, rug pulls or exploits, hacks. You know, those are kind of the ones that make the headline news. You know, X protocol was compromised for, you know, on X amount of hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, I think the wormhole exploit was about that much, like $100 million. Um, and those are really what makes up you know, the majority of like the total stolen funds, you know, like for 2021, we've got, you know, 7.8 billion from scams and 2.8 billion from rug pulls. Um, the lines between those two things are probably, is probably fairly hazy, but, you know, a lot of it is, isn't like criminal activity as in people are selling drugs. It's people are targeting this very young technology and they're finding exploits, you know, crypto's grown tremendously fast. You have, you know, billions and billions of dollars, right, circulating among the protocols. And anytime you have kind of early technology, there's going to be weaknesses. So generally, when we see exploits, it's either on bridges. So, you know, the big one was like the wormhole hack. Uh, Ronin Bridge was another big one um, where, you know, you're transferring a token from chain A to chain B. And as a, you know, Vitalik, you know, the creator of Ethereum, as he says, you know, cross-chain uh, protocols have inherent security risks that, you know, not easy to solve. Um, so they're targeting protocols like that. And they're also targeting just regular DeFi protocols that have large amount of capital. So like farms, exchanges, uh, lending uh, protocols. Uh, Mango Markets was one of the biggest uh kind of decentralized exchange on Solana where you could do leverage trading and uh, you could borrow or an interest on your deposits. Americans not allowed, of course, um, but they got, they recently got exploited through a flat. Well, I don't think it was a flash loan attack. Technically it was an, an Oracle exploit in that the attackers manipulated the, the price feeds from the, the pith and switchboard oracles in order to, withdraw just like ludicrous amounts of money from the protocol that the protocol thought was okay, but the oracles weren't reading the right price. So I think they took a similar amount, like 150 million from that. So those are kind of examples of really the high, those are the high profile. You're looking at what kind of crimes, what kind of scams are being committed. Those are like the high profile ones. And then you probably have tons of smaller ones, which is, you know, we, we call the rug pulls where, you know, remember on the smart contract, anybody can mint a token. Anybody can go on Telegram. Telegram is the most popular probably avenue for this kind of promotion. You can mint a coin, typically a fork of SHIB or Doge, some kind of reflection token, which I mean, SHIB was technically a fork of RFI, but uh, not to get off track. They'll fork a token, usually a meme or a current event, and they will heavily shill it. It'll start with like $1,000 in liquidity. No joke. So you, you do like a $100 buy order, you're looking at like 40% slippage, which is insane. But, you know, enough people FOMO in that these coins explode to, you know, sometimes tens of millions of market cap. And so for those who could buy it when it was like a thousand market cap, goodness gracious, that's, uh, that's big money. But these, these happen all the time, you know, during, during the bull market. It was just, it was just crazy. It was almost an industry. People dubbed it the, the BSC casino because no one was using ETH because the gas was too high. <laughs> But yeah, th those are, you know, I think when it comes to where's this illegal money coming from in terms of being stolen from the blockchain, those are kind of some, some big examples. Mm -hmm. And that, those telegram groups or the, 
the the coins like that. I haven't actually participated in any of those telegram rooms, but I've seen a lot of like I'm always contacted by someone saying, "Hey, are you interested in cryptocurrency?" It's usually a gorgeous female. At first it was a scam where they were trying to get you to send them a little bitcoin and they'd send you back double and I think it's just kind of grown from there saying, "Hey, buy this. This is the next meme coin." But I I'm always confused by how people are scammed by it or you know like what what's wrong with these people well, well see it's a scam well let me give, give you a good example so you know teams you remember teams can a lot of this is about presentation and if you're trying to run a meme coin scam these teams actually invest like a fair amount of money to kind of grow their brand for a bit you know so they'll get a very professional twitter page they'll you know, get some, you know, AI generated bios, you know, profile pictures for the, for the team. They'll create LinkedIn pages, you know, they'll create professional websites, right? And they'll do this whole, the roadmap, the white paper, they'll build all of this so that to, you know, someone who doesn't know much about crypto, you know, maybe they're in a few telegram groups and some of, some people go, Hey, you know, check this out. It's kind of making the rounds. They go, Oh, you look at the website, you go, Oh, there's, there's the guy who's in charge. There's a link to his LinkedIn you know, um, sounds great. And so you invest and these guys, they keep the ruse going for a period of time until the coin reaches, you know, maybe a couple million in market cap, at which point there's probably about a hundred grand worth of on BSC, like there's probably a hundred grand worth of BNB in the liquidity pool for the token. And then what they do is they just pull the liquidity. Goodbye, you know, and whatever, maybe, maybe they spend, you know, between one and five grand on on all the setup, but so you just snag you know hundred thousand dollars. It mm -hmm. it makes it worth it. So and the only way to determine if they're not going to pull the liquidity is either you've got to determine that they're legit. So that's hard at mm -hmm. times, or you have to be smart enough to look in the smart contract to see if their if the liquidity is unlocked. Right, see who owns those keys. And sometimes it's not so easy. Uh, you know they've they've uh, the scammers have gotten so smart. You know the arms race between the scammers and I guess the retail people just keeps going on. They're going to hide. They're going to have a master chef contract that migrates the code. It, it's bad. You know, it, you, it's not easy. It's not yeah. as like simple as, okay, a hot lady DM me asking me for my, my private keys. The scams have sometimes even to me shockingly evolved to be very complex. These people that aren't super into Bitcoin or DeFi that just maybe have, they've only been in the market a few months or trying to make a quick buck. They think Bitcoin or Ethereum's like too old and not enough pump potential. So they're like, okay, I'm getting in on this. This is the next Dogecoin pump. I'm here for it. Mm -hmm. And then they are probably going to the CFTC and the SEC and complaining after they get rugged saying, hey, what the heck? You guys should have protected me. And then that's what's prompting um, things like the Uki Dow getting that, um, you know, getting mm. taken down, and and this report that that you were looking at the cryptocurrency and cybercrime, it really did show the the DeFi protocols being the areas where there is mm. more of that. I think it's still illegal. It's it's probably pretty clearly securities fraud. You know, these people are marketing the token, saying it's going to increase in value. They're like, we're going to buy billboards. You know, we're going to. By marketing, you know, we're going to pay celebrities uh, to, to shill our token, right? So I, I think this is, I mean, that's just, that's the SEC's worst nightmare.
<laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Um, in, in some ways. Uh, but yeah, these people I'm sure complain and I'm sure it's on the SEC's radar. So I guess we only have ourselves to blame in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what we get for being the Wild West. Yeah, yeah. Well, what do you what did you think about the LexPunk um, DAO group of lawyers challenging the service that the CFTC? Yeah, so this was hilarious. I I never thought I would see the CFTC deliver service through Telegram. I'm like, <laughs> through Telegram, really now? <laughs> and their username is like CFTC Enforcement in all caps. And you know, I was like, you know what I do. I see that and I'm like, oh, nice try, scammer. <laughs> Delete. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's what I do. So I mean, tell, obviously, completely ridiculous. Start through Telegram, and they're like, they're like, oh yeah, we're trying to message like the help bot, and I'm like, no one uses the help bot. No one's gonna see that. <laughs> so that's um, and if you go on the forum, yeah, I checked out the the Uki Dao forum, and yep, the CFTC's post is right there, and their username, all caps, CFTC enforcement. Um, and then they created a second thread to post something else. And the mod was like, can you please keep this to one thread? And then they didn't, and then they didn't respond. So they don't even have good forum etiquette, but, um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I think I'm with you. You know, I listened to some of your podcasts about it. Completely ridiculous, especially the telegram thing. That's just insane. But it is a good question to ask is like, well, you know, how do we serve DAOs where there's, where no one stocks? Like that's, this isn't, you know, that that's really an excellent question. And, you know, I, I listened to some of, you know, Com Commissioner uh, Mersinger's dissent. And, you know, what she basically says is, like, this is really unknown territory. You know, we shouldn't be regulating through enforcement. You know, we've, we've, we should put out, you know, a, a forum for questions, you know, get some more info, you know, really discuss this issue instead of just bringing the hammer down in a way where, it's like, do you even, can you even bring the hammer down? You know, that's like, that's a good question. Mm -hmm. But at least in her opinion, though, she thought that Uki Dao absolutely was like violating rules, uh, particularly when they, you know, like you said, poke the bear, so to speak, right? Which is generally not wise um, by targeting, I, you know, they basically said, we can dodge, you can dodge KYC, we can dodge enforceability, so come trade here. And so as long as they're serving US customers, you know, Commissioner uh, Mersinger says that eh, we probably do have jurisdiction over something like that. Mm -hmm. But they need and what's going to happen if no one responds, then it's just going go to go to a default notice like the CFTC mm -hmm. will just win by default. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. But I love that the Lex Punk Army has, you know, come in and said, hey, I, I think coin... <laughs> Actually, someone else, and I, I don't have the name top of mind right now, but someone else joined as well. So now yeah. there are two, two groups who have said, hey, you need to do more than sending these documents to Telegram for it to actually be considered service. Right. Um, and, and to be clear, it was sent to Telegram and also the, the Uki Dao forum, which I think like if I'm the CFTC, like the Telegram thing, I think is pretty much indefensible. But, you know, the CFTC... They have, I think, an argument. It's hard for me to say how strong that is because I guess I haven't really looked into the case law behind forum service, if any. Uh, but it's like, okay, well, they did post a thread on the Ukidao forum with all the information and people saw it, you know? So maybe that's one of the, the CFTC's stronger arguments. But um, 
But yeah, I'm gonna be following it closely. And I saw that the judge did allow Lex Punk and the other group to at least do amicate, uh, amicus curiae briefs, right? That's so, right. and then and then he'll and then he'll reconsider or potentially reconsider. I guess we don't know for sure. Um, yeah. So we'll we'll have to follow that closely because this this is this is new ground. This is where we're blazing a path. Yeah, exactly. That's exciting. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw one person though, not to be Debbie Downer, but one seemed like a more seasoned attorney in the in the Lex Punk Telegram mm-hmm. room saying, "Hey, you guys are actually off base here because there's lots of case law that says alternative service in the way the CFTC did it is." acceptable and mm. standard. Those weren't on DAOs. There's a lot of case law around how you serve, but the Lex Punk group, they they have a good argument here too, that you need, you need at least for someone to agree and acknowledge that they've accepted service. And it, it really comes down to the fundamentals of what is a DAO. If it's a decentralized technology that's autonomous or yeah, that's autonomous, autonomous in terms of it doesn't need people to function behind it, then who are you actually serving? There's so many of these DAO groups, and I don't know whether Uki is or not a centralized group of people behind it, but um, I know there are certain DAOs that at least the Lex Punk Army believes are actually autonomous in their functioning and they just function by these votes and it's a smart contract basis. And in those cases, they they're not capable of being served a lawsuit because they're not a person kind of yeah. the same as the OFAC arguments that you know against tornado cash like you can't put OFAC's uh you know sanctions on code well well they're going after the developers right and well yeah the developers and I'm like well jail. that's 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 yeah I'm like that's not right certainly not mm-hmm. um yeah so and I think part of you know Mersinger's dissent was like, I think the CFTC is just targeting anyone who voted, basically, yeah. as like a member, as yeah. a member of the, of the, you know, the unincorporated, you know, group. So, mm-hmm. and then she was like, well, that doesn't sound wise. Like, that just sounds extremely arbitrary. You know, what if you just didn't vote, but still had tokens and used the service? Do you not count? You know, what if you voted on something meaningless? Like, these are all, these are all questions that we need answers to. So, at least with with the Lex Punk, uh, you know, army. Hopefully, at a minimum, like who knows who's going to win. But at a minimum, we need some answers. And, yeah, um, I and think we're going to get those. Voice for DAOs being, you know, uh, contributing there. Then um, yeah, yeah. It's a uh, Gabriel Shapiro is the the main attorney behind it, or the I think he's the creator. I had him on my show back a couple years ago, mm-hmm. but he's he's been just incredible. Um, voice for the space like advocating for DAOs so um, I was glad to see they took that action yeah and then um you know for the last story what's what's your take on some of these bands like we saw Kanye West getting banned and then PayPal with this ADL partnership what do you think this cancel culture is going to do for the space well you know if anything I think it's probably one of our best advertisements you know, people are concerned about cancel culture and the thought of it going beyond just, okay, well, I just got banned from Facebook too. Oh, well, now I can't use my bank account. You know, that's like, oh, I'm in trouble. So people are going to be looking for alternate avenues of, you know, running their finances. And I think, you know, decentralized crypto for the most part, you know, is basically the perfect solution with 
know, maybe some hiccups that we work out in the future. Um, but I think it's just, it, it's very strong evidence of kind of the problems with the current financial system and that everything is so centralized. And, you know, people are so partisan these days that it's, and I, and I think there's, there, there can be plenty of fear on both sides. You know, I mean, the right might be worried about it, but, you know, the left was during the civil rights era, for example, you know, you saw civil rights organizations just get stopped in the South, you know, not being allowed to organize, you know, I'm sure they weren't allowed to buy things. And, and we're like, okay, well, that's not right. So I think a financial system that is kind of not beholden to political interests will probably be, you know, of interest for anyone who who's kind of seeing, you know, what's going on now. Agreed. Yeah. And, and now we might have a, maybe Kanye will make some rap songs about it. <laughs> yes, Kanye, pump my bags. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, I have a feeling it's going to be a Yeezy coin. Yeah. And then, and then, and then the, the SEC will come knocking. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kim just got that, you know, he, he's probably well aware of her. Uh, her <laughs> yeah. Um, charge, but. But yeah, it's a, it's just getting ridiculous. So it started, I remember when it started and we saw Alex Jones getting canceled and so many people thought, well, he's so crazy and out there, he deserves to be canceled. But then it's like, once that line's crossed, they just can cancel anyone for anything. And, and, you know, getting a bank account taken away isn't anything that new for anyone in the crypto industry for the last, you know, seven or eight years, I've seen so many mm. clients lose their bank accounts. And it's, it's the worst thing to happen when you're relying on the bank to process transactions and you get 30 days and you have to go create another account. And often these companies will build themselves up so high that they have these huge transaction volumes that the other bank maybe got comfortable mm. with. But when you're starting at a new bank, it's like, money coming from Paxful or different Bitcoin exchanges, it just makes the bank very uncomfortable. So sometimes they get, once they lose their main account, then they have to start over a new bank, then that gets canceled. And it just finding banking partnerships is like the hardest thing for companies. So hopefully Kanye won't have, you know, another bank will just be glad to take him. And he probably has so much money in there that, it, you know, it's really, uh, profit driven for a bank to take on whatever risk they feel but uh it's hard to see where this comes from like what 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 criteria did they use to to shut him down and it, in in america they don't even need any criteria it's just oh we mm. feel suspicious about this account or we were no longer comfortable with this risk and then you know you're on your own Goodbye. yeah it, it's a tough balance between you know liberty as in control of your business versus, you know, so, some businesses are so vague, right? I mean, there's all that talk about, you know, Twitter being the new public square, for example, right? Mm -hmm. You know, at what point does a service become so big that it becomes kind of a rights issue when they start acting on kind of those more arbitrary, you know, factors? So I mean, people will always say, you know, oh, well, free speech, you only have freedom of speech from the government. And I'm like, well, is that really where we want to be like drawing the line there? You know, um, Im imagine if BP, you know, or something started petitioning banks to like close the accounts for environmental groups, right? They, then are you going to say, oh, well, you know, they're free to do that because they don't like what they're saying. I'm like, well, that doesn't sound wise. 
this is the very typical like who watches the watchers problem where even when the companies have maybe good intentions like paypal and the adl they're like oh we want to you know not fund hate groups or you know racists you know whatever label they decide to throw out it's like okay well maybe in a vacuum that sounds great but who determines who's a hate group or who's a racist it, yeah. it becomes harder you know when there's no there's no there's no oversight Mm-hmm. But I think that's a fight. I I will always be the free speech maximalist. <laughs> so yeah. I'm uh, I I'm against probably all of these things. I think freedom of speech is very important, not just from the government, but for, for you know from any large institution that might be able to destroy your life, because mm-hmm. you have to you have to be able to speak. And there's so many countries where we've seen kind of the chilling effect of what happens when free speech gets clamped down on. And I think, honestly, I think this should, this is a bipartisan take where both sides should want freedom of speech. You know, it's like, we can argue about perspectives and use of speech later, but, you know, I would think that activists would be some of the most vocal defenders of speech because they rely on that to make the changes that they want to make. So you have to be careful. Yeah, cancel I some cancel someone tomorrow. You might get canceled today. You know. <laughs> yeah, I remember um, a while back, um, J.K. Rowling posting something about like, "Well, can someone explain Bitcoin to me?" And Adam Back went on and told her, "You know, hey, you've been a little bit, you know, vocal about the trans culture. Um, you know, that could one day." end up with you getting your bank account canceled or you know people won't be able to pay for your book and then you can't sell your work because of your political view and it it was a few years ago and I he got all these people commenting that would never happen that's so outrageous and I think we've moved Mm. so far today that anyone can see especially after what happened in Canada with the truckers like you know people are still don't have their access to PayPal accounts if they donated to to that movement and it's just uh it's coming so and then what once that cbdc rolls out if it does you know then that'll be even more like if you view the wrong thing or you know you you do anything against what the government Mm. wants or we saw it with the vaccine i think was the most prevalent spot where it was like if anyone took any if anyone said anything it was considered misinformation like if you're just questioning that narrative and I, I feel like the the ability to speak out has you know come back like it's no longer such a scary thing but it was it was not only coming from the government or you were worried that like you know Facebook or Twitter or Instagram everything was flagging anything you post as being misinformation if it wasn't along that that you know narrative hmm. and, but it almost was a chilling effect just from the social side of it like everyone that had gotten the you know, vaccine was ready to jump all over you if, if, if they thought you were, you know, questioning it. And so, and, and so many people went quiet during that period. And then now it's like, oh, now people can talk again. And it's only a few months later, but I just feel there's been a, a big difference in how, how it's viewed today versus, you know, months ago, but what will the next thing be? And now that the, you know, the tyrants have seen how effective they can be, you know, hopefully they don't come, you know, come out with the next thing and it's, uh, it's even worse, but, but yeah, it's a, yeah. 
free speech is something we need to protect and I don't absolutely yeah <laughs> it's um yeah you know it's scary stuff and I think people these days get so bogged down in the specifics of the arguments of like what you should say or what you should not say like you know if you have an audience are you maybe have to be careful what you say sure you know but at the end of the day it's you really need to be careful with the precedents you are setting you know if maybe someone's anti-vax right and they get banned then you might think oh well that's if you're like a pro you know pro vaccine person i think oh well, that's great that's fantastic you know uh good they're gone but then you know you try to post about something that you care about maybe let's say something about you know the banks making improper decisions during the 2008 financial crisis oops now you're gone too you know it's like oh well now it's not so funny anymore now is it or abortion um, like it's like the total opposite yeah. <laughs> mindset of like my body my choice when it comes to an abortion <laughs> but when it comes to a vaccine like oh no your body government's choice and so the people could come out like completely different on that issue and then you know they uh, yeah we'll see <laughs> yeah I, I don't know. I just think it's it's shocking kind of how far certain groups, you know, have gone to like the anti-free speech side. I remember, well, I don't remember because I wasn't there, but I know I learned in history class, you know, in 1978, the ACLU defended the rights of the local neo-Nazi chapter to march. And, you know, these people obviously are hideous and the ACLU opposes everything they stand for. But the ACLU knew they're like, well, if these guys lose their rights to organize. That means in the event where we need to organize for the rights of, you know, a particular group of people, that precedent could be used against us. So they were willing, they, like they had the foresight to see that, that free speech is more than just what is being said. It's, it's the right for that thing to be said um, without retaliation. Yeah. I might not like what you say, but I'll defend your right to say it. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, Bill, thank you so much for, for going through all this. You're very well spoken and uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. So thank you. Where Thanks, Sasha, for having me. Oh, no problem. Thanks for all the great work. <laughs> it, was, it was great. It was a blast. <laughs> do you have, where can people find you? Are you on Twitter or LinkedIn or, you know, what's it? I, where do you? Yeah, you, you can find me on LinkedIn. I sometimes post about crypto sometimes, um, but yeah, just LinkedIn bill wise. I'm sure we can stick a link somewhere in the description, um, but yeah, it's, uh, follow me and watch me observe some cataclysmic events when they happen. <laughs> I'll generally post in real time when crazy things are occurring. So that can be uh, hopefully informative. Very good. Well, thank you and enjoy the rest of your Friday. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, Sasha.